0: before we begin uh, may, can I just pray ask the Lord to to help us as we worship him now not in song but in the word so let, let me pray Father what a joy to be together with your people. I confess there are times that when I have to preach I, I just I just want the songs to be over with so I can begin. But today, God, I just could sing those songs forever. We speak of our Savior, the one who has come to an unlovely people. Oh God, would take us upward now, I pray, as we look to your word and be reminded of why it is we do what we do as we celebrate and have an occasion. To herald the Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Christmas is the only holiday that is celebrated. Both as a major secular holiday and a Christian holiday. This means that there are two groups with two different Celebrations. Together, both these groups make up millions of people enjoying this one Christmas season, yet both have very different experiences. On one side, you have Christians who are frustrated with the public festivity surrounding Christmas because it's devoid of Christ. There's Christmas carols that have devolved. From theologically rich lyrics such as Veiled in Flesh the Godhead Sea, Hail the Incarnate Deity, to Santa Baby, So Hurry Down the Chimney Tonight. Christmas has become that sugary treat that initially tastes sweet but has no actual substance. And so Christians have grown frustrated with Christmas. But then on the other side, you have the non-religious people who keep finding the Christian origins creeping into their holiday mood. Unbelievers find the offensive message of Jesus interrupting their Christmas. Non-Christians are baffled when their children sing carols and they have to ask their parents, what does it mean born to give the second birth? Now I don't think both parties will ever be satisfied with Christmas. Christmas will not ever will never go away because there's just too much money involved in that holiday. My worry is that Christians may forfeit Christmas to the culture. So today I desire to in a in a sense rescue Christmas to its original meaning according to God's Word. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let me read our passage. It says this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard What we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. The title for this morning is The Meaning of Christmas. And I want to explain the meaning of Christmas is revealed in this passage in three unmistakable realities. Three unmistakable realities. And the first reality is this, that Christmas... Is a historical reality. Christmas is a historical reality. Verse 1 begins with what was from the beginning. That word beginning means that there was a point in time, it's a temporal word, where God steps out of eternity into our human history. And so the events of human history are forever changed. From the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, the events of the manger, The wise men, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not mystical legends, but historical events. Now, how do we know that they're not mystical or legendary types of events? Because the way John explains this ancient text, he says this, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is acting as an eyewitness. He is acting as an eyewitness, addressing the skeptics of his day that are like the skeptics of our day. Was it real? Was there a real Christ? Is it possible that God would dirty himself and become sinful man? Is that possible? Would the immortal put on the mortal? Would God, this spirit, put on flesh? And so, in John's day, there were these people that said, that's not possible. God reveals himself only to the super elite, the Gnostics, those that had the inside secret knowledge of God. They were called these Gnostics. And only they could understand God, but John is saying, no, no. The immortal God reveals himself to common people. Well, we have the same skeptics today, but instead they have a different type of question that they ask. They accuse Christianity of being man-made, being a legend or a myth. It is conceivable to many unbelievers that Jesus is God. And furthermore, that Jesus is the only way to God. That is an offensive message. And so John's opening sentence is really the tip of the spear that confronts all those accusations against this mythical story of Jesus. And he addresses those accusations by saying, I was there. I was there. I saw with my own eyes. I heard with my own ears and I touched him with my own hands. Three sensory experiences where John is vouching for the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when they, the original audience, when they received this letter, one thing was for sure, it could not have been a myth. This could not have been a myth. This could not have been a legend. Why? Because the writings of John and the rest of the gospel writers mention specific names of people, places, and events. Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caesar Augustus those are real people those are real places those are real events that took place and if you have a if you have a myth or a legend you speak always with ambiguity when you speak with a myth you say once upon a time when i don't know once upon a time in a land far far away where i don't know in a land somewhere far away ambiguity but when you speak As an eyewitness, you speak with specificity. This person, his name was. This location, it was here. The original audience could not have absorbed this text and said, it's a myth. No, it was not a myth. It was an eyewitness account. So that leaves you with two choices. Either this eyewitness account is true, or this eyewitness account is false. Let's assume for a moment that this eyewitness was false. If it was a lie, if John was lying, if the New Testament was lying about the Lord Jesus Christ, I would argue it's a very dumb lie. It's a very foolish, clumsy lie. Why would you want to spin your tale of lies by mentioning the names of people, places, and events within 50 years of the death of Jesus Christ? Did you know that the entirety of the entire New Testament was written within 50 years? 50 years. People will still be around 50 years and remember those places. Furthermore, it's an, another reason why it's a bad, clumsy lie is because why would you go to the very locations where these events took place and tell these people about a, an alleged lie to fabricate a false narrative about Jesus? They could vouch and say, no, I remember there was a man. I remember there was this man... Joseph. And I remember there was this marriage that was kind of odd to a woman named Mary. It could not have been a false account, but a true one. Because it could all be verified. It's a real history. All these events concerning Jesus is called real history about this person called the Word of Life. It's a historical account of what God has done By graciously coming down to save people from their sins. Forgiving them and rescuing them so that he could spend an eternity with them. Christmas is a historical account of grace. Because God came down because we could not go up. And really that's the choice of humanity, isn't it? Either receive the gracious gift of God who came down or... We try and work our way up. We try and work our way up by obedience. And if you try to work your way up with obedience, you have really two experiences in this life. The first is if you do your best to be a good person. And that's the most common answer when I ask someone, how do you know you're going to heaven? The answer is often because I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things. Well, if you are of that category, that means the more good works that you do, you start to see the people who don't do the good works that you do. And what that means is then you will start to become prideful and disdain the people that are not like you because you live such an obedient life to God and the rest of humanity does not and so you look down on them with disdain. Or... If you are the kind of person who is trying to obey God, but you're stumbling along and failing miserably. You attempt to do good works, but you're not sure you've done enough good. You're not sure if you've obeyed the law enough. You will then live not a life of pride, but you will live a life of insecurity. I just don't know. I just don't know if I've done enough. I'm not sure what will happen to me if I die. I don't know what God will say. I just don't know. You see, both are terrible ways to live. Either one, you're full of pride because you think you're better than other people because of your obedience. Or the other way is you're just not sure if you've obeyed enough. That route you do not want to take of trying to work and obey God with all your might and try to be good and be on the good list even with this... I'm not even going to begin to talk about Santa Claus. But you don't want to go down that route of trying to obey and be on this list of Good works. I propose to you a third option. A third option, and that is this that it's not about what you've done, but about what God has done. It's not about what you've done in your obedience. It's not about what you've done in your attempt to obey God, but it's instead trust in the one who has planned salvation from the beginning. The very purpose of saving sinners like us, broken people, through the person of Jesus Christ. It was not a plan B. It was from the beginning. What was from the beginning indicates God had planned this from long ago. It was not a reaction. Oh, no. My humanity, my creation failed to obey the law. What am I to do? Well, this plan of salvation has always been. It's from the beginning. You see, dear friends, you don't want to see Jesus in Christmas during this season. And when you hear about the birth of Jesus and you may be even an, an advance person, and you start to see, oh, well, he grew up, he, he lived this perfect life, so maybe I see Jesus as an example. I want to live my life like Jesus, and I want to be like him. Now, clearly, Jesus is an example, but if you view him only as an example, and you try to be like him with all your might, trying to follow and obey his example, and that you think that if you obey him enough, you follow his commands enough, you will be saved. No. Because you will let people down, your family down, you will let God down, because there's still something in you called sin and you can't get rid of it. So you need to look at Jesus very differently. Instead of looking at Him as an example, you need to look at Jesus as this, fundamentally. Jesus is fundamentally this. He is our example. I'm sorry, He is our substitute. Not our example. He is fundamentally our substitute. He is our substitute. In His Life, he obeys what we could not obey. He obeys all the laws on our behalf. Everything that God commands humanity to do, Jesus obeys. He obeys because he has something that we don't have. Purity, perfection, righteousness. He does not have what we have. What we have is something called sin. He does not have that. And so he is able to obey every command of God in his life as our substitute. But he's also our substitute in his death. In his death, he receives the punishment for the sins that we've committed. And so he receives the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he dies in our place. The one who committed no sin dies in our place. So that means, dear friends, really, there's only one choice. You go through all of it, there's only one choice. There's only one choice. And that is to receive what God has done. Not what you have done, but what God has done in Christ. And to receive that by faith. To receive what He has done by faith. And then you may ask the question, well, why Him? Why Jesus? Why not anyone else? Because there's something that Jesus did that no one else has done. And that is this. He died and rose from the grave. All religious leaders of this era <clears throat> and of eras of bygone years, they have all died and remained dead. Except for Christ. He rose from the dead on the third day just as He said He would. That means salvation can is found and is only found in Christ. That means salvation is only by grace. It's not about what we're able to do because we will fall. But God came down to us. We've sung a song about it. There's a name given to him. We read it today in Isaiah chapter 7. His name is Immanuel, God with us. Because we could not go up to him. And so that means we need to view Jesus. You need to confess Christ if you don't know him. Confess him as the one who lived, the one who died, the one who was raised again on the third day. And he did that for me. Oftentimes we see that story. Oh, Jesus did that for them. Jesus did that for people. Jesus did that for the world. Have you ever thought Jesus did that for me? Have you ever thought about that Jesus did that for me? And With all the noise of Christmas, we forget that. It's personal. He did that for me. So, dear friends, Christmas is historical because it is the history of good news where Jesus comes to us to become our substitute so that we could have eternal life by placing our faith in what He has done, not in what we try to do, what we try to attempt. So Christmas is a historical reality. But secondly, Christmas is also a relational reality. It's relational. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this. If you have your Bible, look at verse 2 and 3. Here at our church, we believe in the Bible, and so we read the Bible and explain from the Bible. So it says here in verse 2 and 3, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here in verse 2 and 3, we read that the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you. He's repeating phrases that he mentioned already. He cannot help but begin this letter by talking about the reality of Jesus Christ. I've seen, I've heard, he's repeating it over and over. He's repeating the reality that has pierced into human history. And he's saying this because he's been forever changed as a result of meeting this revealed Christ. And isn't that true that when you become a Christian, you are changed completely? I think that's what happens to all Christians. When you become a Christian, you're changed in all your relationships. And that's exactly what happens here. When John is saved, his relationships with everybody changes. And it begins with a change in in his relationship with God. It begins with a change in the relationship with God because he now is able to have something called fellowship with God. He was not able to have fellowship with God before because fellowship with God means it's a, a, it's a word that means to share. In the verbal form, it means the sharing of resources. Like in the book of Acts, chapter 2, they were giving stuff to each other. They were sharing. That's the word for fellowship. But in the noun form, When Christians talk about we have fellowship, when we talk about we have fellowship with God, what it means is a mutual sharing of affection and delight in the presence of another. It's a mutual sharing of affection and delight in the presence of another. It's a mutual delight. Which means you enjoy God and God enjoys you. Have you ever thought about that? That God enjoys you as a christian god has a peculiar discriminating love for you unlike anyone else god loves you differently than god loves the world god describes this like a marriage and for those of you that are married married you should know this you should know this husbands should have a discriminating love toward their wives. If they don't, they're in trouble. That means the husband must treat their wife differently than they treat other women. They don't speak to other women like they do their wife. They don't care and bring attention to other women than their own wife. Well, the same is true with God the Father. First John chapter 3, if you look over, look at how the the intentional love the Father has. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, See, or behold, how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God and such we are. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, He says this, The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this we know the love of God was manifested to us in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live Through Him. Then he says in verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. That the Father loved us. And that the Father would send His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then down in verse 19, he says, We love because He first loved us. But what John is saying is really not original to John. This is going all the way back hundreds of years in the days of Zephaniah, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, this is what God says Yahweh, the Lord your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love, and he will rejoice over you with joyful singing. Can you imagine that, Christian? That God is going to sing over you with delight and with joy because he has an affection for you. We delight in God and at the same time God delights in us, rejoices over us and sings with joy over us. Fellowship with God has a massive implication for life. It means you'll never be alone as a Christian. You'll never be alone. John Owen in his book Communion with God was helpful to And he said these words. If I'm hated in the world, I will go where I know I'm loved. Though all others hate me, yet my father is tender and full of compassion. I will go to him and find happiness in him. In the world, I'm considered vile. I'm frowned on and rejected. But I have an honor and love with a father whose kindness is better than life itself. There I shall have all things in their fullness, which others have only in dribs and drabs. There is in my Father's love everything that I desire. There I find the sweetness of all His infinite mercies. You see, the Christian has this secret place where he can go or where she can go. Not to revel or hide in their sin, but to quietly commune and fellowship in their delight with their God. And Owen would go on to say that it is this. there's a difference between the true and the false Christian. He says this, quote, Outwardly, both do the same thing and enjoy the same privileges, but now enter into their secret prayers and thoughts. Oh, what a difference there is. There the saints hold communion with God. Hypocrites, for the most part, commune with the world and with their own lusts. That's the difference. Christians spend time with God in their thoughts and in their prayers in their secret place. The imitable A.W. Tozer famously said, I fear that for the most part, people are worshipping worship rather than worshipping God in communing with Him. Isn't that true today? He said that 60 years ago. People are in love with the activity of worship, of the singing, of the raising of hands. They're in love with the experience of worship, but what they fail to do is actually commune with God. Oftentimes, you can can trick someone into becoming a Christian by singing these songs and having these experiences and fall in love with those experiences. But one thing that they will not have is fellowship with God because they've never bowed the knee to Christ. They've never submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ where they now see Him as God their Father. And so that's why Jesus would at times say these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Oh, Christian, you know that at any moment you can worship and fellowship with, with God the Father. That's what it means to become a, a Christian is that you would now have fellowship with God. Your relationship with God has changed. He has gone from being your enemy to being your judge, to now becoming your father and becoming your friend. Secondly, the other relationship that has changed is not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with Christians. You now enjoy this mutual fellowship with other believers. You have fellowship with other believers. Go back to 1 John 1. He says, we have fellowship. We want you to have fellowship with us. With us and other believers, we want you to have fellowship with us. This is why Christians enjoy being in the presence of God and in the presence of God's people. I think this is weird for the watching world to see. It's a very weird thing. When I was visiting churches, when I was an unbeliever, I remember I thought Christians were very weird. They spent so much time together. The world is fascinated by this. And if you think you're not weird, you are. And here's why. Because they look at you and they say, Wow, you go to church every Sunday. And then I think their jaw drops when you tell them, Yeah, I go in the morning and I go in the evening. You go to church twice? Why would you do that? Actually, I actually actually go in the middle of the week too. There's something called a fellowship group. You go three times. Actually, I actually meet with other Christians. We have something called discipleship where we meet with other people and talk about life. You meet with them four times. Actually, we have people over at our house too. That's why I think unbelievers will sometimes say, You guys are a cult. You are spending too much time with each other. See, and, I, and I, when I was an unbeliever, I, I thought that is weird for Christians to do that. They spend more time with each other than I would spend time with my own family. You spend time with, more, with each other more times than I spend with my own closest relative. It's weird. But that's what happens when you become a Christian. You have fellowship, and it's mutual. It's mutual delight. I remember when I became a Christian, I noticed that all my relationships with friends changed. They changed because they did not want to hang out with me because I kept talking about Jesus. And I realized one of two things. They spoke of Jesus, but in a different way. And then there's other friends who spoke of Jesus, but did not want to hear about Jesus. They use them as a curse word. And so they, they said, you are different. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. And I was very discouraged by that because I didn't have that many friends to begin with. And so when God started taking away my friends, I was very discouraged. But God was so kind and he gave me new friends. And these new friends, when I would talk to them about Jesus, they talked about Jesus back to me. And it was wonderful. It's fellowship. It's something that a Christian cannot help to do. And because that's what Christians do, they experience a mutual delight in the presence of someone else. That's what fellowship is. That's why Christians, if you're a visitor here today, you're wondering, why do you guys do that? It's because it's something that you can't understand until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's something that we as Christians enjoy. Fellowship is mutual. Christians actually love being with each other, just as Christians love being with God. So that's the second change. Your change, your relationship with God changes. Your relationship with Christian changes. But thirdly, the other change in your relationships is with unbelievers. Your relationship with unbelievers changes. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience forgiveness of sin. They experience the promise of eternal life. They experience fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. What will that do to you when you experience all of that? It makes you want to speak, doesn't it? It makes you want to proclaim, testify, and herald what Christ has done in your life. And that's exactly what John says. What we have seen, what we have heard, we now proclaim to you. And if you are an unbeliever and you're wondering, why does my friend keep talking about Jesus? Because they've experienced Him. And they're doing exactly what God says happens to Christians. They speak. One of the major changes that happens to a Christian is that they cannot keep their mouth closed. They continue to talk, some more than others. But there is a, a song in their heart. There is a joy in their lips. And the way sometimes that the culture wants to scrub all that out is they want to silence Christians from speaking about Christianity. And that's why all the elements of Christ is removed from Christmas so that there is a pseudo-fellowship that is happening with unbelievers and believers during this Christmas season. So you need to remove the gospel, you need to remove Christ, you need to scrub out the saving grace of God so that there's pseudo-mutual delight in the celebration of this one day. But that can't be because Christians need to speak. Christmas is relational because here's what you need to know about Christmas. Christmas is fundamentally this. Christmas is about becoming a Christian. That's what it's about. It's about becoming a Christian. And the world cannot receive that. There's a hatred towards that. There's a desire to remove. So they only keep the safe elements of Christmas. Baby Jesus. They want to keep baby Jesus. They want to keep... Mary and Joseph, and the angels and the shepherds and the gifts and the lights and the music, because those are all safe. All of those things don't really have a speaking message. Whereas Jesus comes and He's called the Word of Life. He is the divine speech of God. He speaks. And so Christians, we cannot let culture dictate or define Christmas for us. But they will if we stop speaking. They will if we stop professing. They will if we stop heralding and proclaiming of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So Christmas is historical. Christmas is relational. But lastly, Christmas is emotional. Christmas is emotional. Look at verse 4. He says this. All these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. Why would Christmas make our joy complete? Why would Christianity make our joy complete? Well, I think that question has already been answered because we will have true fellowship with God. We will have true relationships with people forever, eternity forever with people. We will spend an eternity with God forever. We will be saved from the wrath to come. We will be saved from an eternal conscious torment in hell, we'll be with God forever and with God the Father, God the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, "We write this so that your joy, that our joy, he includes himself, he can't help it, our joy, not just your joy, but our joy will be made complete. Now if you're a visitor here today and you hear the preacher talking about joy, you need to be a bit suspicious. I would, if I was in your shoes, If I came and I heard about this Messiah, about this Jewish man named Jesus, and he spoke about joy, my first question is, what would you know about joy? Because I don't think you know about my sadness. You don't know about my difficulty. You don't know about my sorrows. What does Jesus know about my sorrows? I would be suspicious if a preacher talked to you about the joy of joy of Christ or the joy of being a Christian without explaining what he means. Well, Jesus knows about joy because he knows about sorrow. Probably far more than you and I will ever know. In fact, in Isaiah 53, here is what he is called. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he's called this. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows And acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. So the title that Jesus is given is he's called this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, in what way was Jesus a man full of sorrows and grief? This is where I want to tell you maybe one Christmas story that you may have not heard. One Christmas story where you may not have heard. It's mentioned in Luke 2, but it's very fast. We read it this morning, and I asked Rusty to read it because it's it's, uh, very... Why don't we turn there? Go to Luke 2. Here's the story in Luke 2. There's a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Augustus. And he issues a decree for a census to be taken. Now, they do a census because they want to count people. And they do that so that they can raise taxes. That's that's really the reason why. So this guy would be a great governor for California, Caesar Augustus. Come here, raise taxes. But the census, in order for the census to take place, you have to go to your hometown. You have to go back to where you were born. And so here, Joseph was betrothed, or engaged... To be with Mary, who was at the time pregnant with child. And the child was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. That's the story. We're familiar with this. And so Joseph and Mary would then have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, a distance of about 90 miles. They would That means by foot they would have to travel from Nazareth, where Joseph now resides, along with Mary and Mary's parents, back to Bethlehem a distance of 90 miles, four to five days by foot. And so upon arrival to Bethlehem, Joseph is knocking on the doors of his hometown. And look at what it says in verse 7. That's starting in verse 6. And we're in Luke now. And he says this. This is a familiar Christmas passage. He says, Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. She's reaching that point of time when the baby is ready to come out. And then in verse seven, and then she gave birth to her firstborn and son and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the inn. There's no place for them in the inn. That's all it says. And then right after that, in the same region, there were some shepherds and then it goes right into the scenes of the shepherds. Now, what comes to our minds when we think of an inn Isn't it oftentimes when we think of an inn, it's like a hotel room, like a motel, uh, like a a, a temporary place of lodging. So, for example, in Luke chapter 10, the same gospel, there's a story of the Good Samaritan where a, a man who was beaten up needed help and so the Good Samaritan goes up to him and takes him to an inn, a temporary lodging place. But the word for inn here is not that same word for temporary lodging place. Here... The word for in is really the word guest room. I have the Legacy Standard Bible, and it properly translates this word as there was no place for them in the guest room. And now, a guest room was common in those days because that was a time of great hospitality. People always traveled by foot, house to house to house. And so there was a hospitality exercise. It was very common because travelers would need a place to stay as they would have that place as a junction point to their final destination. Now, think with me. Let's replay the scene. Each home had a guest room. Each home had a guest room. Let's repeat the scene back in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place or no room for them in the guest room. What was it like for Joseph to do that? What was it like? Remember, Joseph was an honorable man, a righteous man. In fact, he didn't want to divorce Mary. He didn't want to publicly do that. She would have been uh, mocked, perhaps stoned, for what happened to her because she would have been accused of all sorts of nefarious accusations against her. But he was an upright man, which means his parents were probably upright parents. He was a good Jewish boy, raised in a good Jewish home. Very moral people. And so he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Bethlehem. He knows the streets. He knows the neighborhood. He knows where to go. He knows where his uncles live. He knows where his cousins live. He knows, even perhaps, if his parents were still alive, where they live. And, Jesus, and, and Joseph was a upstanding, honorable man. He was well-loved. My question is, why would his friends, his uncles, his cousins, his parents turn him away? It's just two people. Why no room? Okay, let's slow it down some more. Let's replay the scene. Opens the door. Hey Joseph, good to see you. It's been it's been a long time. I heard you moved to Nazareth it's been what 10 years? Hey Joseph who who's that with you? What does Joseph say? She's my my girlfriend, my wife. You, you were you're married. Where when where when was when was the wedding? Uh, How come we weren't invited to the wedding? Wait a minute. He's pregnant. You're not married. Get out. Get out. Get out. In that time period, you don't understand this. In that time period, they lived in a shame honor culture. Shame honor culture. You do not have fornicators stay in your house. And so, what was the scene like? I remember you, Joseph. I don't know who she is. I don't have, none of us here know about a wedding. There was no marriage. That can only conclude in their mind. You were born. This child of yours was, you committed fornication. Get out. Get out. Now, how do I know that's possibly what happened? Because it's speculation, I admit. It is speculation. But the reason I come to that conclusion, because in John chapter 8, go there, go to John chapter 8. When Jesus was older now, he's in his 30s. He's in his 30s. And he's picking a fight with Jews because they're trying to explain that they are going to heaven. They're righteous because they're the son of Abraham. And so Jesus says this in John chapter 8. In verse 40, But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We were not born of fornication. You see, we have one father, God. Even at the age of 30, they accused Jesus. There was a reputation that Jesus always had of being one born of fornication. Isn't that amazing that the, the Son of God had this reputation amongst people? He was what Isaiah chapter 9, a light in darkness. But in, only, in order for him to come into darkness, he had to experience darkness himself. He had to experience the sorrow of what it means to live under shame. He had to know what it means to, as, to be a man who lives under grief. So many false accusations his whole life. Even before his born, He was born, His own parents experienced shame, shame, shame. Sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. So why is it that Jesus would be called a man of sorrows? Because He was born into it. He was born into it. He knows sorrow. He knows shame. Does it not surprise you that the, the people that Jesus would hang out with are the most pitiful people? Prostitutes tax collectors, why would they approach Jesus and be with Him? Could it be that Jesus knows about their shame? Could it be that Jesus knows what it means to be abandoned by your own family? Could it be that Jesus knows what it means to be ostracized, to be kicked out, to be neglected, to be abandoned? Because He's lived it His whole life. And on top of that, He suffers. On top of that, He's rejected. He comes with a message and he's rejected, rejected, rejected. He is the king who is announced only to be rejected. His whole life, rejection, rejection. Even in his final days, abandonment, abandonment. His closest disciple, the apostle Peter, denies him. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is this man who is the one who would say this in Luke chapter 5 verse 32. Why were the broken people attracted to him? Here's why. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he says this I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He came not for the self righteous people. Who did Jesus not hang out with? Righteous people. People who said, You know, I got this. I got this life. I'm good enough. I've done enough. I think God is going to be happy with how I live my life compared to these other poor people over here. I'm trying, I'm doing my very best so God's going to accept me because I'm doing my best for Him. Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I came for those that are spiritually poor. For those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are spiritually bankrupt. Those that can say, I can't get to heaven. I don't know what to do. I am a sinner through and through. Go, God forgive me. That's what Jesus comes for. But for the proud, for the self-righteous, but the clean, Jesus says, away with me, away from me. You see, Jesus knows about sorrow, doesn't he? He knows about every sorrow that you and I could ever possibly imagine and, and, and have. He was tempted in all ways, Hebrews 4 tells us, yet without sin. He is what Hebrews tells us, a sympathetic high priest, able to understand us in every way. Oh, friends, Jesus knows shame, sorrow, and grief. From the very beginning. He is this one who is called the man of sorrows. Therefore, he is the one that can rescue people from their sorrows to give them joy. And joy means a gladness that God is with you even in your trials and struggles, even when you are downcast. When Jesus saved people in the in that first century, did you know that they remained poor? When 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 poor people got saved, they remained poor. And the lie today is that when you get when you become a Christian you become rich. That's not true. That is prosperity nonsense gospel. That is another gospel you need to run from that. If you're involved in any of that, run from it. That's a lie. And when you become a Christian, here's what happens. You actually have a, may have more problems. You will be persecuted just like Jesus. You will be despised by the world just like Jesus. But here's the difference. You will have joy in the midst of all your problems. Why would they have joy? Because they have Jesus. Because remember, joy is not the absence of trouble. Joy is the presence of Christ. That's why you can have joy in the midst of your problems. Because you're no longer alone. They have the Lord who is with them and promises never to leave them nor forsake them. That's another way of saying you now have permanent fellowship with God. No matter, That means this no matter how bad I feel about myself, no matter how poorly I think I've done in something, in a conversation I had with my kids, with my wife, with my employer, with my friends, with other Christians, with my elders, with my other pastors, no matter how much I totally mess it up, I cannot break my fellowship with God. Now, my experience of that may feel very poorly, but I need to be reminded God will never forsake me. Because God changes my status from one who is guilty to one who is righteous. From one who is condemned to one who is set free. One who is from a son of Adam to now become the son of God. Christmas is emotional. Because God gives you such blessings and riches that you are now full of joy. That you are now compelled with that joy to tell others of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Because of what Christ has done in you. You have what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, And though you do not see Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Or as the King James puts it, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of joy, The world has never seen anyone who, anyone with joy as our Lord knew it. And yet he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And then he would go on to testify what joy does to the Christian, saying, quote, He, Christ, that is, satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote with your friends. Many today have an idea of God. And they have a picture of God as at the very top of a mountain. I've had these conversations with people where they will tell me that God, you and I, we all worship the same God because God is in the top of a mountain and we are all on our journey to get there. We're all walking our different paths to get there. Because we all worship the same God, whether it's the God of Allah, the God of... uh, Judaism, you know, all the other gods even, the multiplicity of God somehow, they're all the same God up at the very top. And so we're all on a journey. You just happen to go that route, I go this route, but we're all going to end up in the same place. And this is where I tell someone who tells me that, wait, hold on, time out. I see what you're saying, but I think here's the difference between Christianity and what you're proposing. You see... All religions of the world are trying to go and make their way up to God. The difference with Christianity is God comes down to us. He comes down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, becomes one of us, and becomes what's called a substitute, living the fallen life that we have lived and instead living a perfect life that we should have. And dying a death that we deserve because of all the sins that we have committed, He takes our place. And we can believe him because he rose from the dead. Unlike your God, who is still in the ground. Unlike your God, who is still dead. Unlike your God, who no longer speaks. My God still speaks. He speaks through his word, and it is eternal. Does that make sense now? And what would they say? See, that's the difference. That's the difference between Christianity and the rest of the world. Our God comes down. He comes down. Christmas gives us the reality of God coming down to us, which is historical. Relational and emotional. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oh, give us a reason to sing. Remind us of the reason of why we would sing and rejoice in what you have done. I pray, help us now to marvel at what you have done coming down from heaven to become us, to put on flesh, to be us, to experience sorrow, to experience grief, to be... The one thing that we need, not an example, what we need is a substitute. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down and being the person that we could not be perfect so that we would be received into heaven by the Father. I pray for this morning that if someone here does not know you, they can confess right now where they sit, right where they sit. Confess with their mouth that Christ is the one that they need, that they are a sinner through and through. And they can come to him and repent of their sins and believe in what Jesus has done is enough. Nothing else needs to be added. What Christ has done is enough for them. And would you do that? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.